First John, in your Bibles, let's turn there, and we'll pick up where we left off last week. Um, glad to see everybody here again tonight, and uh, appreciate you making the effort to come out and uh, participate with us in, in singing and some teaching, uh, and our time of questions and answers afterwards, um, and uh, I look forward to that. Well, I want to start tonight by first reading our reading out a passage of scripture here in First John chapter one, uh, and then we'll pray. I'm gonna I want to read verses five through ten. Now we're not going to get through five through ten tonight. Just just a warning. We're not we're not getting through all of it. Okay. Uh, in fact, probably one verse is what we'll get through tonight. So, um, but there's just. There's too, too much to talk about in that verse, in, the, in, the, in verse 5 there. So we're going to, and, and we're also trying to keep it uh, a little shorter so that we have time for Q&A without going too late. So um, let's read in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this night. We thank you, Father, for your word and uh, the ability we have to gather around it, to open it, to study it, or without fear of danger or harm, whereas so many of your children across the world have a different circumstance. Father, you are faithful to them as you are faithful to us. I pray, Lord, tonight that you would, you would open our hearts, that we would offer our hearts completely to you, Lord, that you would open them, expose in us the areas where our thinking is wrong. Uh, Lord, use your word to impact us because your word is living and active. It is not old and stuffy. It is not useless. Father, it is sufficient for, for all things for life and godliness for us. Lord, we're so grateful for it. We praise you for the forgiveness of sins that was mentioned in this passage already as we read through it. Uh, through Christ Jesus, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Um, so, what we, what we looked at last time uh, for, for a recap was John's refutation of the, the Gnostic heresy about Jesus Christ. Uh, the way he did that was by testifying of what he knew by personal experience as an apostle of Jesus. Okay, he walked with Jesus for three years, possibly closer to Jesus than any other human being. Um, and people can argue about that with Peter and James, but um, he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Some might say, well, that's just John's opinion of himself, right? But, but that is the word of God says that. The inspired word of God says that he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. That doesn't mean Jesus loved didn't love the others or loved them less per se. But there is a, there is a special relationship there. 
Um, if anyone knew Jesus was truly God, but also truly man, well, it was John. And, and he brought that to the forefront in his opening remarks in, in 1 John to express the truth about Jesus actually being in bodily form completely contradicted the teaching of the Gnostics that, that Jesus was not really human. Um, that's why John used the language of hearing and seeing and touching uh, when referencing Jesus. And he was a credible eyewitness. In fact, the only credible eyewitness. Who are the people going to believe? Right? We, we, we talked about the Gnostics last time. A Gnostic false teacher uh, could, could stand and only philosophize and speculate about, um, about Jesus based on his own imagination or mystical beliefs. Okay? He could only speculate. Uh, are they going to believe that? Or John, one of Jesus' own apostles, who could stand and testify, I was there. Uh, he called me. I was, he was my friend. He was my teacher. He was my Lord. He's my Savior. John could say, not only that he called me, but I lived with him, walked with him, saw him do his miracles. I saw his transfiguration on the mountain. I was there when they crucified his actual body. Okay? He, he called me to, uh, from the cross and asked me to take care of his mother upon his death. I watched him die. Mary Magdalene came to Peter and I, John, right, on the third day and said the tomb was empty. And who ran to the tomb? Peter and John. And John says about himself, but I ran faster. I got there first. Okay? And he's peering into the, to the tomb and he can testify the tomb was empty. He saw that it was empty. He believed. That's what the scripture says. Then he, he could say to them uh, that Jesus appeared to them in bodily form again and told us to touch him, to prove he was not just a spirit, but that he was indeed resurrected in bodily form. And he could say he, he kept appearing for 40 days. He was alive again. The testimony of an eyewitness. Acts 1.3 uh, says, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He could say, I was there when he ascended back into heaven, and I watched him being lifted up by a cloud and disappearing out of our sight. Okay, I, I saw it all. He is real. So when John says he heard and he saw and he touched the word of life, that's what he means. No Gnostic heretic, 60 years after the fact, who wasn't even there, had any credibility to say anything. So the word of life, Jesus, God himself was manifested in the flesh. That's what he said in the first few verses. He wants to, that's an emphatic thing. You got it? He, he manifested in the flesh. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, and we want your fellowship to be with us as well. Now that we got that straight, he could go on and say, let me tell you what he said. And that's where we're at tonight. He wants to say, let me tell you what he said. John writes about the message of Jesus, and he starts by establishing um, the ultimate foundational truth about God, which uh, immediately elevates God, puts him out of reach of mankind. Look at what he says in verse 5 again in John, 1 John chapter 1. 
This is the message we heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. It's interesting to notice that John wrote about proclaiming something to the, to the people in verses two and three uh, that we looked at last time. And, and now he writes again about proclaiming a message to the people. But he used two different, or two words that are different only by one letter um, that, but actually changes the meaning slightly, but importantly. The word he used in verses two and three means to bring tidings or a word from someone. Okay, here the focus is on the source of the message. Okay, who said it? And the word he uses here in, in our passage tonight in verse five means to announce or to make known. And the one letter change that he makes here, um, it makes it so that the focus is now on the recipient of the message. Okay, it's not that the message didn't come from the source, that it didn't come from God, but, but what's important here is that it is intended to be received by the target of the message. It's delivered to the targets. It's not just general knowledge floating, floating around in the air, floating around out there for someone to grab onto. Um, this message is not only from the source, but it's for you. Okay, so he changes that word by one letter, but it really does change the meaning. Though we see proclaim in both, both instances, there is a different meaning there. Um, and, so, and they would get that meaning because they speak the language. It's, it's a message directed to them, and that's what he's now proclaiming to them. Um, he says he heard the message from Christ, from the source. It's, it's not a new message either. It's not a new message that John has come up with after Christ ascended. He watched Christ, as we talked about earlier, ascending in the clouds. And it's not a new message that came later on. This is the message that he heard directly from Christ while he sat under his teaching. And it is that which was from the beginning, uh, the unchangeable message, the unchanging message, um, the unchanging truth about God. And now he's proclaiming it or delivering it to the target, as he's, as he's always done since um, the Spirit of God came on them in power at Pentecost. They've been taking this message forth. They have been proclaiming this message. It's not a new message. But here he, he's reminding them of not only the source, but that this message is intended for them. Okay, uh, so it, that, that's what he's doing here, kind of. Here it is. Here is the message. This is what we learned from Jesus from his own physical mouth. Again, this, there's a, a constant error here of prove, disproving the Gnostic belief about Jesus, that he was just a phantom, uh, but that he's a real person, and John is that eyewitness. Um, and so here is the message, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And from the earliest biblical writings, if you want to start turning to Genesis 1, um, we see talk of darkness and light. Okay? In, in the creation account, God made the sun and the moon to give light and to rule over the day and the night for a purpose. So let's look at that purpose. If you want to turn to Genesis chapter 1, let's look at verses 16 through 18 in Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 16 through 18. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. 
And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. Okay, God saw it was good. So what does verse, let's talk about that for a second. Here's a question for you. What does verse 18 reveal about the purpose for the light? What is God's purpose there? Okay, yeah, separate, divide. That, that is the purpose there. To rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. Not only does God separate light from darkness, but we also see in that passage that God said that that is good. To do so, to separate light and darkness, is good. Um, it is, which means the darkness is bad. Okay? He said it is good to do this, to separate light from darkness. By implication, the darkness is bad, or we would say maybe evil. Um, and before I get to what John means here in this passage by using the light and darkness metaphor, which mostly scripture uses to talk about truth versus lies or good versus evil, um, I want to get at a, at a broader reason for this statement that he makes. And uh, this will take up a little bit of time, but I think it's really important. This is a, an expression, again, of the separateness of God. This, this statement that John made here in our passage tonight is what I'm talking about. Okay, that, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Okay, this is, expresses a great separation. John's drawing a line in the sand, and not only is God on one side of the line and we're on the other side, <clears throat> but we can't even see the line. We're not even close to it. We can't even conceive of the line. That's how far away it is. It's not like God's on one side, we're right on the other you know, able to reach over or something. The, the point is that God is completely separate. Uh, separation is uh, an important theme, really, in all of Scripture. Nothing in all existence is more separate than God. And the biblical word for this is holiness. Um, God is holy, which literally means set apart. Uh, and there's no way that that I can even scratch the surface regarding the holiness of God in a few minutes. Um, there are entire books on the holiness of God. Uh, it's a vast subject. Um, his, his absolute purity and perfection in every possible way. And sometimes it seems like the only way we can emphasize the holiness of God is to emphasize those words. <laughs> uh, but, but that's not even really helpful. And honestly, it's, it's a concept that's uh, beyond a complete grasp. But, but I, that shouldn't be a discouragement to us. Uh, we should never stop the pursuit of more knowledge about the holiness of God. And the answers about the holiness of God are both awe-inspiring and fear-inducing. Uh, his holiness in light of Christ's suffering brings about both sorrow over sin, and joy in salvation. And we see his holiness expressed in rhetorical questions at uh, the beginning of God's written word and at the end of God's written word. In Exodus 15, 11, uh, it says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? 
Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Who is like him? The point is no one. It's, it's, not a, it's a rhetorical question. The, the goal is not to search for someone like him or even to try and think of someone like him. There's no one. That's the immediate answer to the question is no one. That's the point of it. It's to set God apart. Revelation 15.4 says, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Again, who will not fear? What's the answer to that one? Who will not fear? The point is, everyone will fear. Everyone will fear God. The goal is not to find the one willing and able to stand up against God. The point is, absolutely nobody, no nation, can or will be able to stand against God. And it's a fearful thing. As I, as I thought through this, you know, the scriptures express God's holiness in words. I mean, literally saying he's holy. And you can read that all throughout the scriptures. But sometimes we can't really get the gravity of it. Um, and, and what helps us to get the gravity of it is when we sort of see the effects of the holiness of God on, on someone. Uh, or on some unsuspecting person, which is usually what happens. Um, those who, in an instant, are, find themselves face-to-face uh, with it and, and immediately know how desperately lost they are. And I want to turn and look at Isaiah 6, if you would, in your Bibles. Isaiah chapter 6. And really, all of this is, is important to this, this passage that John is writing in 1 John. To, to understand as much as we can the holiness of God as he shares these words and writes these words about light and darkness and, and that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. It's, again, this description of his holiness and his separateness. And so it's important for us to, to study about this. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Let's, let's read that. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Notice in that passage that no accusation was made to Isaiah about Isaiah. There, wasn't a, there hasn't been any words spoken to Isaiah yet about something. But at the, the declaration three times of God's holiness, Isaiah is struck with an acute awareness that he didn't belong. He didn't fit in. 
He was a, a foreign object in the presence of the thrice holy God. Whatever he once thought of himself, he came to realize it was worse. There, it, it's an it's a amazing passage of Scripture that, that gives us this picture of this one who, it, there was nobody there saying how unholy you are or here's all the bad things you did, but, but when presented with the majesty and the, of God and the shaking and the, the declaration of his holiness, a person becomes aware of their complete lack of holiness. Uh, and, and therefore he says what he says. I, I'm a man of unclean lips, you know. And, and we see that in Scripture and other places. People's responses to, to uh, the appearance of Jesus or to the appearance even of an angel. Uh, this, is, this is a reaction of fear and of humility. And it reminds me of <clears throat> wearing, wearing a white shirt and then, then going to the store and buying a package of new white shirts only to realize the shirt I was wearing is gray or, you know, even brown in comparison. What I thought was white, I hold up this new white shirt and it's not even close. When held up against what is truly white, what we thought was white is exposed as totally filthy. And God's holiness is the one attribute of God that is expressed three times, one after another, in Scripture. Um, you've probably seen or heard people point out that, that the Bible doesn't say that God is just, 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 or love, love, love. But twice in Scripture, the Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. He's a triune God, and uh, if, if it, it, isn't it enough that for God to say it once that, that he's holy? That really should settle it. Um, and if God said it twice, couldn't we say that he's putting an extremely strong emphasis on his holiness uh, and that we should put that at the top of the heap of his attributes? But to say it three times, what is that if not cause to fall on our faces in utter shame and fear? Isn't that Isaiah's reaction at, at, the, at the realization of the holiness of God? Um, it's an amazing thing, the holiness of God. Just to, to wrap up this tip of the iceberg, look at the holiness of God. Listen to what A.W. Tozer wrote to describe God's holiness. God is not now any holier than he ever was. For he, being unchanging and unchangeable, can never become holier than he is. And he never was holier than he is. And he'll never be any holier than now. His moral excellence implies self-existence. For he did not get his holiness from anyone, nor from anywhere. He did not go off into some vast, infinitely distant realm and there absorb his holiness. He is himself the holiness. He is the all-holy, the holy one. He is holiness itself beyond the power of thought to grasp or of word to express, beyond the power of all praise. Language cannot express the holy. The God, so God resorts to association and suggestion. He cannot say it outright because he would have to use words for which we know no meaning. He would have to translate it down into our unholiness. If he were to tell us how white he is, he would, uh, 
we would understand it in terms of only dingy gray. God cannot tell us by language, so he uses association and suggestion and shows how holiness affects the unholy. He shows Moses at the burning bush before the holy, fiery presence, kneeling down to take his shoes from his feet, hiding his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. All the trumpeting and the voice and the fire and smoke and shaking of the mount, this was God saying by suggestion and association that we couldn't, what we couldn't understand in words. So the holiness of God, though we just touch on it there, is important to bring into this passage of Scripture that John is writing. So when John says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, I want you to have that picture of holiness, God's utter separateness from us. And he didn't say God is a light. He said God is light. Like I said earlier, the, the scriptures use light and darkness as a metaphor. Light is associated with, in the scriptures with truth and goodness or righteousness and life. Uh, the word of God is also used synonymously uh, and is intertwined with truth and life. So, so the word is used with those words also. Darkness in the scripture is associated with deception or evil, or sin, uh, and death. John is not saying here that God emits light or is like light, though we certainly see examples of that in the Scripture. That's not his point here. You know, like at the Transfiguration, uh, it is an example of the physical aspect of the light of God. Matthew 17, 2. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And then the Word of God uh, as light of truth, doing what it does, doing what light does. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a what? To my path, a light. Uh, Proverbs 6, 23, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. 2 Peter 1, 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. And then light being explained as Jesus himself and as life by John in his gospel, John 1, uh, 3 through 5. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What does light do in a physical sense? You go into a dark room with a flashlight, what does light do? What was that? It reveals where you are, okay. Does what? Expels darkness, okay. Yeah, it exposes, along with the themes of showing you what's there, exposes obstacles, right? It shows you a clear path. Um, well, what about in the spiritual sense? What does is, what is the light, let's say the light of the word, what does that do? Again, it's not a flashlight, it's not a physical light, but we know what light does, and that's why God uses those pictures in the scripture. So in a spiritual sense, what does the light do? Okay, guide you to Jesus. Other thoughts on that? 
chose the way. Okay. Why do we need that? Because we're lost. Yeah, we're sinful. We are, before Christ, what are we in? Darkness. Yeah, yeah, and the light reveals the darkness in the sense that, you know, people who are in darkness don't even know they're in darkness until the light comes. Um, and here what he's saying, God is light. That is to say, it is his nature, his character, and his essence. He's always lit. Uh, he's perfectly truth and righteousness and life. Light and dark uh, do not and cannot coexist in God, around God, or from God. That's why he emphasizes his point with the, with the negative as well, when he says, and in him is no darkness at all. Okay, not only all the emphasis on the light, but he doubles down and goes to the negative side and says, there is no darkness at all. It's saying the same thing, but, but it's, a, it's an emphatic way of saying it. And Paul, Paul expresses the impossibility of light and darkness having any chance of mingling when he writes to the Corinthian church uh, in a series of rhetorical questions. In 2 Corinthians 6, uh, 14 and 15, he says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Again, we're going to see the contrasting things here. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And the answer is none, nothing. There, there's no partnership, no fellowship. That's the point. There's no, there's no wiggle room even there. He, he goes on in verse 17 in 2 Corinthians 6 and says, Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And as John continues writing, he reveals that he is, in this instance, using light and darkness to talk more specifically about truth and righteousness, contrasted with lies and deception and sin. As you keep reading in that passage in 1 John, you'll see all of those things coming out. Walking in the light being proof of true fellowship. Walking in the darkness being proof of no fellowship. Paul wrote to the Ephesian Christians about uh, what they used to be and what they are now in Christ, encouraging them not to fellowship with those still in, in disobedience. And he said this, Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were what? Darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk then as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Again, we see those words appearing in association with light. That's what they were. They were darkness. Now they are light in the Lord. And he's saying, you know, remember to, to walk in the biblical sense is describing a person's daily living, right? The way they the way they live in practice. That is a, a person's walk. And his concern here is that the people would truly be in Christ. And again, there's no middle ground. In, in this context, John is making a distinction between believers and unbelievers, not believers and worse believers. So 
So next time, we'll look at this distinction more deeply in, in the following verses uh, in, in John 1. And, but I, I wanted to spend time tonight, and we're already needing to stop. I knew it was going to go quick. Um, but to talk about the holiness of God, and as, as John starts this, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. To have somewhat of a grasp, as feeble as it is, with our minds of the holiness of God is helpful moving forward in this passage to remind us this is no small thing. This, this distinction between light and dark and believing and unbelieving and fellowship and no fellowship, this is a, it's a, a wide gap, right? So it's important for us to understand the holiness of God. Uh, and that's what, he's, that's what he's getting to here. And we'll get more specific next time that we get into this. Any questions before we stop about what we did right here? Real quick, before we get, we'll do a Q&A time. You can ask it there too, but. Okay, let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for tonight. And, and Lord, again, as feeble as it is, God, your holiness is, uh, it's inexpressible. I pray, Father, that it wouldn't be a frustration to us to not be able to fully grasp it, but that it would be uh, a prodding to, to get into your word and to learn more and gain knowledge of you and your holiness. And that each time we do, Father, our amazement and our, our joy and our praise and glory toward you would all increase. And, and the natural result of learning of your holiness is that we decrease Father, not in a self-deprecating sort of way or, or putting ourselves down. Lord, it's just the truth of it. But even more so, how, how much greater does that make it that, that you sent your son to die for us on the cross? That you are holy. You died for the unholy to make them holy in your son. We thank you for it and praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.